the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week, J. Marion Thomas reads us the story of the politician, the street trader, and the foiled kidney transplant plot. Tom Goodenough talks about the blurred lines between sport and entertainment. And Adam Sweeting talks to the documentary maker, Nick Broomfield, about the forgotten Rolling Stone. Up first... J. Marion Thomas. Here is your dilemma. Imagine you have a university-aged daughter who has developed kidney failure. She needs a transplant. You know that the best results are obtained when the operation is performed at a transplant unit with access to the best immunosuppressive drugs, when the kidney is taken from a living donor, and especially when that donor is young and from a similar ethnic background to the recipient. Like most parents, you will do almost anything to help your child. But would you break the law? Ike Ekweremadu thought that the risks of breaking the law in UK were worth taking to gain the best outcome for his daughter. His plan failed. And on 23rd of March, he, his wife Beatrice, and their middleman, Dr. Obina Obeta, a Nigerian doctor living in Southwark, were found guilty of transporting a young man from Nigeria for purposes of organ donation, in violation of the Modern Slavery Act. As a recently retired surgeon, I was fascinated by the case and spent several weeks in the public gallery of Court 5 at the Old Bailey. Ike is a powerful and influential politician in the Nigerian parliament. He was first elected a senator in 2003 and was deputy president of the Senate for three consecutive sessions from 2007 to 2019. As a title of respect, he is known as Chief. He's extremely wealthy and has about 40 homes in Nigeria, Dubai, America and the UK. His four children were educated in British private schools. Ike has a doctor brother called Diwe, who was a classmate of Obeta in medical school. Obeta had a contact in Nigeria who had access to a panel of potential kidney donors. A suitable kidney donor was found, referred to in the trial as C. His name cannot be disclosed. C was an impoverished 21-year-old street trader from Lagos who sold mobile phone accessories from a barrow. The £7,000 reward offered for the kidney was equal to four years of earnings on the barrow, although that's pocket money for the Kuramadus who would also pay £80,000 for the private transplant operation at Royal Free Hospital. A passport and visa were arranged for C. The visa stated that he was Beatrice's sister's son, which was not true. C was brought to London in February 2022 and stayed at Obeta's home. He was coached to provide false answers at the Royal Free interview. It was important for him to understand that altruistic kidney donation is legal in the UK, but not if money or material advantage is exchanged. 
C was rejected as a donor by the Royal Free Hospital, who were not convinced that he and Ike's daughter were first cousins. Also, C, who spoke poor English, also appeared to have only a limited understanding of what was happening. After 11 weeks in London, C was told that he would be returned to Nigeria, but without any of the payment promised. He absconded. Three days later, he turned up at Staines Police Station and told his story that he had been trafficked from Nigeria for kidney donation. The Aquaramadus were arrested at Heathrow Airport as they returned from Turkey, where they had possibly been trying to arrange another transplant. Their phones and devices were seized, which revealed every last detail of the conspiracy. During the trial, it was obvious that the conspirators regarded C as a disposable asset. They had thought it better to buy a kidney rather than ask a family member to donate. In a press release after the conviction, the chief crown prosecutor said, This was a horrific plot to exploit a vulnerable victim. The convicted defendants showed utter disregard for the victim's welfare, health and well-being. Obeta was jailed for 10 years and Aiki for 9 years and 8 months, both to serve two-thirds of their sentences in custody before being released on licence. Despite a desperate flee from her barrister that Beatrice should receive a deferred sentence to care for her daughter, she was jailed for 4 years and 6 months, only half in custody. C has declared that he would be scared to return to Nigeria, fearing retribution, as at the sentencing hearing he refused to claim compensation from the accused who he described as bad people. He was said to be living alone in London, reconstructing his life. Hopefully he will be granted asylum, given his bravery in appearing as a prosecution witness in this trial. So back to you, reader. Where do you stand on the moral and ethical arguments for and against the sale and purchase of kidneys for transplantation? It is illegal in all countries except for Iran, although tolerated in some others. In Iran, kidneys can be sold legally and consequently there is no waiting list for a transplant. A government agency runs a register for buyers and sellers and also oversees the matching process. Kidneys are sold for a fixed price of about 5,000 US dollars. Tens of thousands of transplants have been facilitated in this way. Illegal organ trafficking happens all over the world. It was described in court as an industry. The World Health Organization has estimated that more than 10,000 kidneys are traded every year, more than one every hour. Trafficking happens mainly in low income countries where cadaveric donorship is not established or where kidney dialysis is not available, too expensive or unsafe. In that case, the choice may be between either buying a kidney or death. In high-income countries, buying a kidney for transplantation isn't just illegal, it is usually considered immoral and unethical by the medical profession, ethicists and armchair ethicists alike. The reasons given include the potential coercion and exploitation of vulnerable people and the possible harm done to the donor by having an unnecessary operation. While these are valid and reasonable concerns, they are held from the cosy comfort of a society where kidney dialysis is readily available and a transplant usually possible after a short wait. The factors which limit survival of the transplanted kidney is the availability of medical expertise and the cost of the best drugs for immunosuppression which may amount to £2,000 per month or more. 
This is one of the reasons why the recipient of a transplanted live donor kidney may only survive for two to five years in a low-income country compared to 20 to 25 years in a high-income country. Finally, back to Chief Ekweramadu. If he wishes to atone for his horrific treatment of C while he is in prison, then establishing a world-class nephrology and transplant unit in Lagos would be a fitting act of repentance. That was J. Marion Thomas. Next, Tom Goodenough. Wrexham had never seen anything like it. Thousands of fans cheering their team as an open-top bus made its way through the city streets. On board, Wrexham's footballers celebrated their side's promotion back to the English Football League. The club's star owners, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElney, were there too. And with them, as usual, came the cameras. The rise of Wrexham has become the subject of a hit Disney Plus documentary, Welcome to Wrexham. It's a feel-good story about Ryan and Rob, two rich and handsome actors from the other side of the Atlantic, taking over a down-and-out club in a depressed industrial heartland and giving it hope. Wrexham is not the only football club to have let the cameras in. Manchester City, Tottenham, Sunderland and Arsenal have all been the subjects of docuseries in recent years. These programmes satisfy an insatiable appetite for football content. Broadcasters fight for rights to show games, but that is expensive. The current deal for the Premier League, which runs from 2022 until 2025, is worth £4.8 billion. Even the lower rungs of English football command a huge premium for broadcasters. A five-year deal announced this month between Sky Sports and the Football League will set the broadcaster back £935 million. A documentary costs a fraction of that and often makes for good television. But is it good for sport? Much like Made in Chelsea and Keeping Up with the Kardashians, these shows represent a structured version of reality in order to maximise their dramatic value. It can be hard to know what is honest and what is scripted, or at least staged for televisual effect. That's not to say that what is served up is fake. It's just that, inevitably, viewers get a sanitised version of what it means to be a footballer. Football clubs are hives of testosterone. The actual cast is made up of overpaid young men with overinflated egos. But on these TV shows, the players and staff are well aware the cameras are rolling and are usually on their best behaviour. Any less savoury scenes can be edited out. The outcome is good PR for the football clubs, but viewers are being sold something that isn't quite true. The highs and lows of a football season are boiled down to a series of narratives to suit the series. The real rows and bust-ups in changing rooms are usually left out. The journalist Simon Hattonstone has described All or Nothing, an Amazon Prime documentary series that featured his team, as nothing but a gloriously glossy commercial for Manchester City. Simon Jordan, a former football chairman, says of football reality TV shows, these documentaries promise the world, deliver very little, and increasingly turn the business of football into the business of show. It isn't only football being given a reality TV treatment. Formula One Drive to Survive, now in its fifth series, is one of Netflix's most popular programmes. The company behind that show, Box to Box Films, has also brought out a tennis series, Breakpoint, and a golf one, Full Swing. Another box-to-box documentary on this year's Rugby Union Six Nations Championship will be released next year. More niche sports are getting in on the act too. Make or Break, which follows top surfers, has become a hit on Apple TV. The shows follow a similar formula. Sports stars are given character roles for dramatic benefit. 
hard scrabble heroes, troubled misfits. This appeals to a wider audience. F1 has many more female fans thanks to Drive to Survive, for instance. But for more long-standing supporters, much of the joy comes from trying to decipher the real personality of a sportsman, not just accepting a spoon-fed version of the truth. Defenders of these shows argue that up-close documentaries bring audiences closer than ever to sport. We've given drivers their identities, says Ross Braun, F1's former managing director. That's been enhanced by Drive to Survive, which has really focused on the personalities. But selective editing leads many viewers to wonder how true to life those personalities are. F1 world champion Max Verstappen has said that they try to pick moments and fabricate it in a way. Another F1 star, Pierre Gasly, has also claimed that some scenes are kind of made up. And Braun's language, enhancing a sport through the given identities, is also telling. Sports chiefs, golfers and other athletes or players all talk about the products they offer or the brand. They are, in other words, too aware of entertainment value over fair play, of style over substance. The media happily feeds off this dramatisation for the benefit of consumers. Five storylines we're excited about ahead of the Miami Grand Prix, read an article on the F1 website this month. Storylines, not stories. That's the new unreality of sport. Maybe it doesn't matter if more and more people are entertained. But then sport is just becoming a new kind of televised theatre. The show works as long as you, the viewer, are willing to suspend your disbelief. That was Tom Goodenough. And finally, Adam Sweeting. A documentary by Nick Broomfield is always to some extent about Nick Broomfield, while also finding new and unexpected things to say about its nominal subject. Broomfield has cultivated his own image as the gonzo filmmaker, striding into shot holding a boom microphone, headphones clamped over his ears, and in the politest possible way provoking chaos. Unfortunately, it comes very easily to me to be slightly out of control, he confesses. His previous adventures have included getting on the prickly side of South African white supremacist Eugene Terre Blanche, striking up a strange rapport with the convicted serial killer Eileen Wuornos on death row in Florida, claiming to have worked out who killed the titular gangster rappers in Biggie and Tupac, and provoking a firestorm of legal threats from Whitney Houston's estate with his varnish-stripping portrait of the singer, Whitney, Can I Be Me? But there's no glimpse of microphone, headset, or indeed Broomfield himself in his latest film, The Stones and Brian Jones. It's a riveting examination of the photogenic, fair-haired musician who was the original leader of the Rolling Stones before he was pushed aside by the burgeoning double act of Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. Jones died in July 1969, aged 27, seemingly from a combination of drugs, disillusionment and exhaustion. Having initially been the Rolling Stone who received the most fan mail and the most feverish attention from teenage girls, he has been relegated by history to a mere footnote. He barely got a mention in that series of Stones films that was done for their 60th anniversary last year, Broomfield Notes. That was My Life as a Rolling Stone, shown on BBC Two. One reason Jones became sidetracked was that he lacked the songwriting gifts that allowed Jagger and Richards to create one of the greatest song catalogues in rock and roll history. But nonetheless, he made some vital musical contributions. He experimented with the open guitar tunings he learned from the veteran bluesmen and passed on the knowledge to Keith Richards. His eerie slide guitar was the signature sound of the band's 1964 chart topper Little Red Rooster, 
and he transformed the 1967 hit Ruby Tuesday with his haunting contribution on that least rock and roll of instruments, the recorder. As veteran Stones bass player Bill Wyman says in the film, he would just pick up anything that was handy and create something out of it that wasn't there originally. But why has Broomfield chosen to make this film now? I've done a number of films that have been much more self-reflective in terms of the time I grew up in and so on. I did Marianne and Leonard, about Leonard Cohen and his lover Marianne Island, which was about the 60s. I did My Father and Me, and the new one is a part of that, looking back to a formative part of my life, some of my influences and stuff. Broomfield, now in his mid-70s, had a special interest in the Leonard Cohen story because he too had been Marianne Island's lover, having met her on the Greek island of Hydra in 1968. She even gave him his first acid trip. The film about himself and his father, Morris, a renowned industrial photographer, speaks volumes about Morris's creative influence on his son and the changing currents of British social history which affected both of them. With Brian Jones, Broomfield has again found a uniquely personal angle, albeit a narrow one, to help frame his film. As a 14-year-old schoolboy attending Sidcot School near Winscombe in Somerset, he met Jones on a train and fell into conversation with him. There were all these first-class carriages, and he was sitting there by himself, and I sort of banged on the window, he says. He was very welcoming and said, come in. I said, can I have your autograph? And he said, yeah. And then he said, sit down. It was just like he wanted to have a chat. This was the time when the stones were urinating on garage walls and all the rest of it. But they were like a great symbol of good behaviour for us lot. Wonderful. Finally, somebody's doing what we want to do. Then the big surprise was that he was really into trains and train spotting which is not something that I'd expected. He and Stu, that's Rolling Stone's tour manager Ian Stewart, would go and buy bits for their train sets when they were on tour or go train spotting together. But perhaps what really tickled Broomfield's filmmaking fancy was not a fascination with vintage rolling stock, but the way that Jones personified the generation gap that yawned open at the beginning of the 60s. He was the well-spoken son of aeronautical engineer Lewis Jones and his wife Louisa, who lived in upper-middle-class comfort in leafy Cheltenham. But while his parents were both musicians steeped in classical music, Brian developed an obsession with the blues. His father noted how Brian underwent a peculiar change in his early teens and embarked on a lifestyle of playing in blues clubs, often surviving by billeting himself on the families of a string of girlfriends. The girlfriends frequently ended up becoming pregnant. Among other treats like some illuminating contributions from Wyman and vivid recollections from film director Volker Schlondorf about the way Anita Pallenberg arrived at the Cannes Film Festival with Jones but left with Keith Richards, the film is a feat of archival research. It's crammed with magical footage of the nascent stones, the quaint monochrome Britain they emerged out of, and their visits to the States, Australia and Europe. Scenes of delirious, shrieking fans being shoved and kicked off the stage by bouncers as startling reminders of the unearthly impact of rock and roll after the smoggy conformity of the post-war years, as if the Stones and their contemporaries had arrived overhead like cultural dam-busters. Broomfield spent two and a half years unearthing all this material, much of which has never been seen since it was originally shot. He says, I think that the great explosion of art and design and music that was so profound in the 60s is much more circumscribed now. The possibilities are much more controlled than they were. Now, all the material would be owned by somebody and impossible to license or use. Similarly, he had no interest in approaching the streaming giants like Netflix or Amazon to get the Jones film funded. 
Netflix are incredibly conservative, and their first question would be, has the band signed off on this, he says. If you said, well, no, actually, because I'm going to make something that's unauthorised, they would tell you to take a running jump. So he's grateful to the BBC for sticking by him through the project. They rather like it when it's not authorised, and it's going to be a much more honest, unblinkered look at something, he maintains. What makes Broomfield so valuable as a filmmaker is his willingness to dive in and make something happen. The more unexpected, the better. He cites his influences such pioneering documentarists as Don Pennebaker, Richard Leacock and Frederick Wiseman, but also references Gay Talese's famous 1966 feature for American Esquire, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Talese arrived in L.A. tasked with interviewing Sinatra, who claimed to have a cold and refused to speak to the writer. Talese constructed his piece by spending three months observing Sinatra wherever he could and talking to members of his entourage. The article came to be viewed as a benchmark of the so-called new journalism. It was about the way in which you get the story is the way that reveals stuff about people, says Broomfield. I think documentary is all about the spontaneous and the unexpected and the moment, and the American streaming networks on the whole have scripted pieces with a beginning, a middle and an end before they start. I always think, how can you possibly know the end when it hasn't happened? Hopefully you're going to come up with an end, which is totally brilliant and unexpected and is a revelation to you and the audience. Happily, Broomfield found a powerful little evidence bomb that gives the Stones and Brian Jones a sting in its tail. It's a long lost letter from Jones's father containing a heartfelt apologia for his failure to understand his son and praying for his forgiveness. I've been a very poor and intolerant father in many ways, he admits heartrendingly. It's incredibly tender and painful at the same time, says Broomfield. It was a very difficult time, I guess, to be a parent. People born on the other side of World War II had such a different view of the world. The world changed so much in that time, and there was such a generational conflict, I think. He found this a difficult film to make, but he feels he's learned something from it. I've never made a film that was this archive-heavy, so that's a particular discipline that is just exhausting, really. I can't tell you how relieved I am to get it out. I obviously hope that my approach will have a following and rub off on people, or the films I've made will be a good reference point and a way of looking at the last few decades. But there's always a better film to make, or a better story that you haven't done. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. <laughs>